bit difficult because of, I, I I just been I've been looking at all the, the different topics that I've been speaking on, and um, and basically I'm trying to fight off a little bit more than I can chew and uh, providing evidence for Christ's resurrection and deity by definition. The uh, best I can do is just kind of do a tip of the iceberg type of thing and just uh, just skim the surface. And uh, if, if you look on the page with the number four on the top there, um, the number four exactly doesn't mean anything. It was just it used to be page four of a booklet or whatever that I put together, and then I just used it as a handout. So, but but. Just turn there first, okay? And look at that side. When when we look at the resurrection accounts of Jesus found in the New Testament, okay, there are only four possibilities. And by the way, we really don't even have time to get into the philosophical question of are miracles possible. All I'll say is this. When, when philosophers say that miracles are not possible, that's only because they're assuming that no miracle working God exists. If a miracle working God exists, if he's the one who put the laws of nature into motion, then he's not going to have any problem interrupting or superseding those laws. So basically, if there's good evidence that God exists, then there's good evidence that miracles are possible. Okay? And what we want to do is look at one particular miracle claim and that's the resurrection of Christ. One other uh, introductory note and that is that uh, Christ's resurrection as taught in the scriptures is a bodily resurrection. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't like that. They say no, Jesus just uh, rose in his spirit and uh, that, that is not the case. The scriptures are very clear. Jesus in Luke 24 he appeared alive to the apostles. They thought they were seeing a spirit he said, look, uh, uh, a spirit does not have a body of flesh and bones as I have. Then he told them, touch the wounds in his hands and his feet and his pure side. Then he said, give me a piece of fish, and he ate it in their midst. Okay? So he tried to give overwhelming evidence that he had risen in the same body in which he was crucified. He didn't, God didn't, you know, raise him in a different body and then uh, try to deceive us with those marks in his hands and his feet. It was the same body. He rose in the same body in which he was crucified, but because he was glorified, um, it, it's like our bodies. The same bodies that we have now, after we die, will be raised, okay? But it will put on the mortal, will put on immortality. Okay, so it will be empowered, it will be called a spiritual body, but it's the same body, only there will be some changes. All can, With us, all contamination of sin will be removed and that type of thing. Um, in Jesus' case, um, just all the uh, issues of mortality, the fact that he had a body that could decay and that type of thing. It didn't, but it could decay, okay? And his body put on immortality. Um, but it was still the same body in which he was crucified. Keep that in mind. It's a, it's a really Im important point. But when we look at the resurrection accounts, everyone is in agreement that the New Testament we have today uh, contains these resurrection accounts, that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what 
uh, our New Testaments tell us. Well, how did those accounts get there? Well, there's only four possibilities. One is that they're legends. That maybe Jesus lived a normal life and then he died and he didn't rise from the dead. But as time went on and they told the story of his life, uh, they started to uh, add to it uh, other factors that were not true and eventually a legend developed over a period of, of, of years. Um, another possibility is that, okay, well, no, maybe eyewitnesses told this story of his resurrection, but maybe they were lying. Okay? Another possibility, well, maybe they weren't lying. Um, maybe they were sincere. They really believed he had risen from the dead, but they were deceived. They were wrong. They were sincere, but they were wrong. And the only other possibility is that they were telling the truth, and Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Uh, through process of elimination, we're going to see that the apostles were telling the truth, that Jesus did rise from the dead. Okay? Now what I want you to do is turn over the other side of the page, and I want to discuss with you uh, 12 different uh, areas of evidence for Christ's resurrection. And I would go so far to say that at this particular point, in the history of New Testament scholarship, you know, uh, experts who uh, who have studied the New Testament and make their living teaching New Testament studies at different universities throughout the world, at this particular point, uh, the first 11 of these 12 factors are acknowledged by most New Testament critics today. Now keep in mind, most New Testament critics, just like most New Testament, uh, most New Testament critics, just like most human beings, do not trust in Jesus for salvation. Okay, Christians do not make up a majority of the people on the planet Earth. Well, it's the same way with New Testament critics, they just they, they have PhD after their name and, and and that type of thing. But yet, even though most New Testament critics do not, uh, you know, are not Christians, most of them believe that such a large portion of the New Testament is historically accurate that basically we can take what they give us and build a strong case for Christ's resurrection from the dead. Okay? Um, now, how many people here have heard of the Jesus Seminar? Okay, they're the guys, whenever ABC or CNN wants to do a, a, a story on the historical Jesus, they go to the Jesus Seminar. These guys, these are a radical group of New Testament scholars that um, are simply out of touch and um, with the, the, the present state of New Testament scholarship and uh, they're using scholarship that's been outdated by probably at least 100 to 150 years. The Jesus Seminar, they believe that of only you know very few of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels were really said by him, really spoken by him. So um, the Jesus Seminar would reject a lot of what we're going to talk about, but I just want you to keep in mind they are the exception rather than the rule. Uh, most New Testament scholars especially European scholars and Europeans usually lead the way in scholarship um, are coming closer and closer to the evangelical position 
the evangelical position is that the entire Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. God guided human authors to record His Word without error. So whether it's speaking on issues of history or science or uh, morality or spiritual truth, whatever it's speaking on, it speaks truly. Okay? Well, liberal critics started... Okay? Aristotle's dictum it's a principle made by Aristotle that simply says this whenever you read historical documents you assume that they're accurate until they are proven false until you find evidence that they're false that principle is used whenever we study ancient literature except for the Bible so that we have more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other uh, uh, ancient writing, yet nobody questions Plato based on 12 copies, or 7 copies, 1,200 years after the original was supposedly written. Yet we question the New Testament with well over 24,000 copies, uh, and uh, some of these copies um, were probably copied while, while some of the originals uh, some books of the Bible, some of John's writings were still being written, and we have copies that probably go back that far. So, um, there's a double standard, okay? But even with this double standard, in which scholars have said, okay, the whole New Testament is false until proven true somewhere else, even with this tremendous, unprecedented bias against the New Testament, little by little, New Testament scholars began to find more and more evidence for the truth of larger and larger portions of the New Testament until we get to the point where now New Testament scholars, and again, the Jesus Seminar is an exception, but they're the exception that gets all the media, all the press, uh, until you get to the point where now these guys are... I mean, you got Charlesworth, who is not an evangelical, out of Princeton, teaches at Princeton Theological Seminary, not exactly the most conservative school in the country, okay? I mean, they've hired Peter Singer at Princeton University to teach ethics, and he teaches that the, uh, the value of the life of a newborn baby uh, is lower than the value of the life of a full-grown pig or chimpanzee, okay? So Princeton hires those kinds of people, yet... They've got Charlesworth working over there, and now he's arguing that John's Gospel should be dated in the 50s A.D., whereas even most conservative scholars dated about 85 or 90 A.D., and, uh, and he acknowledges that Matthew and Luke did not make up the virgin birth accounts because it would give too much ammunition to their opponents to argue that Jesus was illegitimate and things of that sort. And so, now he doesn't believe that Christ was born of a virgin, but he at least admits they didn't make it up. So they heard it from somebody else and they thought their sources were reliable because they recorded it. So with this going on, you know, N.T. Wright out of uh, Great Britain, and with his studies going on, E.P. Sanders, the list goes on and on of brilliant New Testament scholars um, that are not Bible-believing Christians, but are acknowledging more and more. In fact, some of these guys, N.T. Wright, I, 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 I think he's a believer. I wouldn't call him evangelical, but he holds to so much of the New Testament that it appears that this guy is trusting in Jesus for salvation. Um, 
Only God knows for sure, of course. But whatever the case, let's take a look at some of these factors, some of these pieces of evidence for Christ's resurrection. James has changed life. Paul's changed life. Peter's changed life. You realize James, it is acknowledged that by most New Testament critics today, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a mocker of Jesus. He did not believe that. It, now, it would be pretty hard for me to believe my brother was the Messiah. But, uh, but James had a hard time believing his big brother, Jesus, was the Messiah. He mocked him. But then all of a sudden, there he is on the Feast of Pentecost. He's in the upper room with Mary and his brothers and the apostles and 120 believers. And when Peter and the other apostles had to flee Jerusalem in the early 40s A.D., he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, one of the most important churches. In fact, at that point, the most important church in, in the entire world, and he becomes the, uh, the, the key guy there, the leader of that church. What happened? What turned him from a mocker to a believer and a recognized leader of the early church? Well, Paul, quoting from an ancient creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, states that Jesus appeared to him alive again. That's what it would take for you to believe your your half-brother is the Jewish Messiah. You'd have to see him alive from the dead. But basically what most scholars acknowledge, even Josephus records that James, the brother of Christ, he records how he was killed, where he was, they took him to the top of the temple and told him to deny that his brother is the Messiah. And uh, he got up there and started preaching Jesus as the Messiah, so they threw him off. He was still alive, so they started stoning him to death. He started quoting Jesus by saying, Father, forgive them, for they, not, they know not what they do. And then a guy took a club and bashed his skull in. Okay? Josephus records that for us. Okay? So, I mean, nobody questions this as a story. Josephus, by the way, was just a Jewish historian writing Jewish history, hired by the Romans to write Jewish history for the Romans. Okay? He lived from 37 to 97 A.D. And uh, I believe James' death was about approximately 64 A.D., somewhere in that period of time. Um, how did he go from a mocker to a leader in the early church? Um, it's acknowledged that Paul's life was dramatically changed, that he really was the lead persecutor, the leading persecutor of the Christian church, and that all of a sudden... He becomes the leading evangelist and the leading theologian and the leading missionary of uh, the early church. You, you take the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his post-resurrection appearances to James, to Paul, to Peter, and you have no explanation as to how their lives, what changed their lives so drastically and, uh, and so quickly. Peter, he went from... Uh, the guy who on the most important day of his life he denied Jesus three times he went from that to a guy who boldly proclaimed Jesus in public whether they scourged him or not to, to the point where eventually he was uh, uh, nailed to a cross upside down how did he go from being a coward to a bold defender of the Christian faith what changed him and, uh, and again it, 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 anything less than Jesus' resurrection, and there'd be no explanation for their changed life. 
By the way, let me say this. When we deal with these evidences, I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket and say any one of these arguments is enough to prove Christ's resurrection. What I would say is you have a cumulative case here. You start putting these evidences together and it becomes tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher to explain away the resurrection of Jesus and Nazareth from the dead. Um, we like to sweep these things under the carpet and, and just say, hey, I want to live my own life, do my own thing. New Testament critics want to do that. Um, but it is amazing how many New Testament critics will give me 11 out of 12 of these. The only thing they would still question is the Shroud of Turin. By the way, the evidence for the Shroud of Turin being authentic is so overwhelming but it, the only problem is it takes two or three hours to present all that evidence. So if you're arguing for Christ's resurrection and the Shroud of Turin, do it in two separate days. And uh, uh, you, you just open up a can of worms that you can't get to while you're defending the resurrection. But whatever the case, if you just look at those first 11, these guys will give you these. And then you'll say, well, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? They'll say, well, I just choose to suspend judgment on that. It's like, you know, ooh, it's, too, it's too close to home. I have to come off the throne in my life, so I'm just not going to think. I'm not going to follow these things out to their logical conclusion. I got off the phone one day with Barry Schwartz, a Jewish man, and uh, he's the world's leading photographer of the Shroud of Turin, and he believes the Shroud of Turin is authentic, and the Shroud of Turin is an authentic burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth. Um... And so then I asked him, well then, and do you know how, it, how the image was formed? He said, no, it, it, we have no natural explanation whatsoever. And in fact, he founded Shroud.com, the world's largest website. He's a Jewish guy. So I asked him, well, do you accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah? And do you believe that he rose from the dead? He said, I choose to remain skeptical about that. I just don't want to go there. Um, and, and that's where a lot of these New Testament critics are today. Um, the empty tomb. Do you realize that... Uh, most William Lane Craig lists 44 of the world's leading New Testament scholars and I could probably come up with at least another 16 so we could bring that number to about 60 of the world's leading New Testament scholars who acknowledge that Christ's tomb was empty on Sunday after after his crucifixion uh, and it, it just it would, it's just too it would be too unbelievable for us to assume that Christ's body, was rot his corpse was rotting in the tomb while the apostles were proclaiming his resurrection in Jerusalem. And there his corpse was rotting in a nearby tomb. And either A, the people who, who heard this message and say, well, let me, let me, Joseph Arimathea's tomb is right, right outside Jerusalem. Let me go check it out. And, you know, and then they would see a rotting corpse and they'd say, well, forget that message. These guys don't know what they're talking about. Or the Jewish religious leaders would have went to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and produced the rotting corpse of Christ, paraded it through the streets of Jerusalem, and boom, no Christianity. And there'd be, you know, no Christianity. We wouldn't be here today. There'd be no Awana. Okay? Um, but uh, whatever the case, most New Testament critics today acknowledge uh, the empty tomb. Um, now, 
Uh, most New Testament scholars today acknowledge that women were the first witnesses. Now you might think, you know, first witnesses of the empty tomb and of the resurrected Christ. You might think, well, no big deal. What's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is this. We now know that in first century, um, in first century times, a woman's testimony did not hold up in a court of law. Okay? Might help your case a little if you can confirm it with the testimony of a few men. But a woman's testimony, there was a chauvinistic society, and a woman's testimony didn't hold up in a court of law. So if the apostles are fabricating these stories, then why not have Peter and John be the first guys to show up at the tomb? Or at least men, at least somebody whose testimony is going to hold up in a court of law. So that is acknowledged as authentic. Okay? You see, when these New Testament critics are taking a um, false until proven true mentality towards the New Testament, towards the resurrection accounts, but whenever they find something that they say, well, wait a minute, if the apostles are, are telling stories and fabricating, or if, if somebody's fabricating, even after the apostles, uh, there's no reason there's no reason why they would fabricate this, that they would make this story up. And, you know, why would you make up a story of a woman being the first witnesses when their testimony wouldn't hold up in a court of law? It would not further your case, okay? In a chauvinistic society, they would just say, oh, that's just ladies telling stories or whatever, whatever it was that they said back then, okay? It does not further their case. Um, so it's accepted as reliable. That Jesus was buried at Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. This is one of the newer things in New Testament research that scholars are starting to, New Testament scholars are starting to acknowledge. You know what? They could, they would not have made this story up. I mean, could, let's let's say let's say first that uh, let's assume that Joseph of Arimathea doesn't exist. So now your big enemies are the Sanhedrin. Those are the guys that put Jesus on trial found him guilty of blasphemy and sent them off to Pilate on a charge of treason to have him crucified. So now the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, kind of like our United States Senate, has 70 elders ruling over Jerusalem uh, and then the, the, uh, the Judea. And, uh, and now we're the apostles and we're going to make up a story that they have a member named Joseph of Arimathea. Well, see, those guys are trying to refute us. If we're going to make up an imaginary senator, okay, we're, we're just going to we're going to lose the debates. So you don't make up some imaginary guy. So, so they they admit, okay, Joseph Arimathea was real, a real guy in a Sanhedrin. Now you got a problem. Now you acknowledge he's a real guy in a Sanhedrin. Would the apostles lie and say Joseph Arimathea gave his tomb? When Joseph Arimathea could stand up and say, I did no such thing. Go and check out my tomb. You'll see that it, it, it's, it's, well, he, even, he could have said, check out my tomb, and it would have been empty. But whatever the case, he could have said, no, I never lent the, the, the tomb to him. Okay? So this is something that you would not, in fact, they even have an official title for it, and I can't remember if it's, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but what it basically is saying is, if you would have fabricated this story, you would be giving your, your opponents the ammunition they would need to refute you. And that the only way you would bring these things up would be if they were true. Okay? Um, uh, the apostles died martyrs' death. This is acknowledged as historical fact. I mean, you could go to the even the correspondence of Emperor Trajan, Emperor Hadrian, Roman emperors, with, uh, with writing back and forth with Roman 
uh, officials like Pliny the Younger and Suetonius, and they'd be talking about how to put Christians to death and, and things of that sort. Ancient writings telling us about it, and we know we know that the Apostle Paul that he was beheaded. We know Peter was crucified upside down. We know how James was killed. The list goes on and on. There's some some apostles we're not sure exactly how they were killed, but we know that they were put to death. Okay, um, and so. You have the apostles dying martyrs' death. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. Okay? See, if you're lying, okay, lying is one of the most selfish things you could do. You lie to protect your own self-interest, okay? Why would the apostles lie to lose their jobs, to be, become wanted men, to be whipped, to be beaten, and eventually put to death? Uh, these guys were sincere. Because the apostles died martyrs' death, they were sincere about what they believed in. That's why there's so much time trying to explain how the apostles could have been deceived because nobody wants to call them liars right now. Um, by the way, Paul's writings at this particular point, Paul's writings with the exception of First and Second Timothy and Titus are the vast majority of, of New Testament scholars, you could almost say the universal judgment of, of New Testament scholars today is that um, uh, all of Paul's writings, the exception of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, there's still debate going on about them, but they were all written by Paul uh, between 49 and 64 to 67 A.D. And so now it used to be that, uh, that even Paul didn't write Paul's letters, it was written much later, and all this stuff is legendary additions added to the text. Now what the argument is, even by the Radical Jesus Seminar, is that somehow Paul perverted or corrupted true Christianity while Peter and James were still alive. Yet Paul says that he met with Peter, James, and John, and once they saw he was, him and Barnabas were preaching the same gospel as them, they extended the right hand of fellowship. Galatians, it's either chapter 1 or chapter 2. And they don't want to call Paul a liar. Even the Jesus Seminar doesn't want to call Paul a liar. So did Paul change Christianity? No, he's not going to. I mean, if Peter's willing to die for the Christian faith, and James is willing to die for the Christian faith, and John's willing to be persecuted for the Christian faith, you think those guys are going to let some new guy, new kid on the block change the Christian faith and just say, yeah, 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 believe whatever he says? No. No. So he wasn't inventing a new Christianity. Um, you know, why did they argue that John's gospel was written so late? They argue that it was written so late because it, it, it so clearly portrays Jesus as God incarnate. You see, it's a presupposition. Jesus is not God incarnate. The idea that Jesus is God become a man is a legend that came later. Therefore, John's gospel had to be written later. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever done it, but if you read through the Gospel of John, one of the things that Jesus does, Christ first, is that the wall is, he says that he is God. And the name of God in Hebrew is I am. And so over and over, Jesus says something like, I am, yeah. in the chapter. Ye
And it's for him to say that. It, 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 it's Agoemi in the, in the Greek, but most likely he was speaking Aramaic, if not Hebrew, um, to the Jewish religious leaders, which basically meant he was calling, he was not only pronouncing the divine title Yahweh, which in itself would be enough to get you stoned to death, um, but he was attributing it to himself. And then they would always say, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait. What is it you're saying? It's like when Jesus called God his own father, John chapter 5, 17 and 18. So they wanted to, to stone him to death, and they picked up stones to stone him. And uh, But then they decided, well, let's question him a little bit further on this. So Jesus says, okay, well, I'll explain myself. You, just, you need to honor me the same way you honor my father. How do we honor the father? We worship him. So Jesus is saying we should worship him as the son. And um, um, so in each, each time, you know, the thing is two things the world wants us to believe about Jesus. Number one, he was probably the greatest communicator who ever lived. And number two, he never claimed to be God, even though everybody and their mother's brother thought he was claiming to be God, so that they crucified him for claiming to be God. If he was the greatest communicator who ever lived and he never claimed to be God, don't you think he would have made that clear? On his, at his trial and said, whoa, 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 guys, guys, you're misunderstanding me. And, and instead, he just reassured them, yeah, I am claiming to be God. And the high priest tore his garments and said, well, what further uh, testimony do we need to hear? Um, okay, uh, the apostles believed that they saw Jesus alive numerous times. Now, I am not saying that most New Testament scholars today believe that the apostles saw Jesus alive. What I'm saying, though, is most New Testament critics really believe that the apostles had experiences in which they, they really believe that they saw Jesus alive from the dead. Okay? And, um, but how do you explain that? If they didn't really see him alive from the dead, how do you explain that? We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, they, by the way, that, that 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, that's an ancient creed for him that was recited or sung in the early churches before the New Testament was ever even written. And um, Paul mentions by name Cephas, uh, which is Peter's Aramaic name, and he mentions uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, as receiving appearances of Jesus. He mentions over 500 people at one time who saw Jesus risen from the dead. Okay, This is an ancient creed. Most New Testament critics date it to between 33 and 37 A.D. as the date that Paul received it from James and Peter when he visited with them in Jerusalem. So you have this ancient creed. Well, uh, A.W.N. Sherwin White was a historian who dealt with ancient Roman society. And what his studies showed was that it takes several centuries for a legend to completely overwhelm some core historical data. We only have three to seven years, and we're already talking about post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in poetic form, which means those the events that would lead to making that poem would have to even uh, predate that. So, I mean, when you got three to seven years, you don't have enough time for a legend, okay? You don't have enough time to come to turn Jesus into a Paul Bunyan legendary type of, of character. Um, but... Um, 
Uh, but most New Testament critics acknowledge that the apostles really believed that they saw Jesus alive after his, resur- after his death numerous times and they were sincere enough about those beliefs to die horrible martyrs' deaths for them. Um, the uh, sermons found in Acts chapters 1 through 12, those sermons are acknowledged as early primitive uh, Christian sermons that they were authentic early sermons uh, because of the terminology that is being used. There's not a whole lot of development in the theology. But in every one of those sermons, what do you find? You know, people like Peter saying, and then God raised them from the dead, and we are all witnesses of that. Over and over again, they proclaim uh, the resurrection. Um, and so it is almost unanimously acknowledged as being in the earliest preaching of uh, the apostolic church um, that the res- Christ's resurrection was the main theme. Well, then it's not a legend. Um, uh, the worship day changed to Sunday, from Saturday to Sunday, by Orthodox Jews. Why, why did uh, the Orthodox Jews worship on Saturday? Well, because God created the universe in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. So for an Orthodox Jew to change the worship day from Saturday to Sunday, something as big as or bigger than creation would have to occur. I think the resurrection is the only candidate there. Okay? Um, uh, Then the church grew rapidly in Jerusalem. How, if the earliest preaching... Contain the, the main one of the main themes of the earliest preaching was Christ's resurrection. How could the church grow rapidly if that uh, was not in fact the case? If Christ really did not rise from the dead? Now the shroud of Turin. Most New Testament critics haven't even looked into the shroud of Turin. If you do look into the shroud of Turin, I think the evidence is uh, over, overwhelming in, in, in its case. Um, um, Sometimes they get a slide presentation on the Shroud. Eric will be talking on the Shroud at some of the future Awana conferences. Um, uh, some of the latest stuff, the Carbon-14 dating, has uh, probably only took two or three years before in scholarly journals the Carbon-14 dating had been tossed aside, okay? Um, that there were more problems with the Carbon-14 dating than there are with the Shroud. And um, at this particular point, the uh, confidence in the Shroud is skyrocketed but um, we'll have to leave that for a, a future time now if you turn back to the page Christ's resurrection based upon these these uh, 11 evidences okay then if we look at the four possibilities we find that the resurrection accounts were not legends because legends take centuries to form okay long after the eyewitnesses are gone long after the pupils of the eyewitnesses are gone, okay? But basically, New Testament reliability plus these evidences here show us that the resurrection accounts were not legends. Uh, these come from the eyewitnesses themselves. Um, the next point, the apostles were not lying about the resurrection. They didn't steal the body and then fabricate the resurrection accounts because they claimed that they saw the resurrected Christ numerous times and then they were willing to die martyrs' deaths 
for these claims. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. You know, when I debated at Princeton, my opponent was uh, uh, Elliot Ratzman, and um, one of their PhD candidates in the religion department, and we were debating on whether the Christian God exists, and obviously I was arguing that he does, but he said two things. He said that I read through the Gospels to prepare for this debate, and I found that the Gospels were nothing but a bunch of fabrications. Later on in the debate, he said, I read through the Gospels to prepare for this debate, and, he, and, he, and I thought to myself, why would I want to follow the Apostles? After all, just from reading the Gospels, they're nothing but, but a bunch of bungling idiots. So my response to him was, you mean to tell me that the Apostles fabricated these accounts and portrayed themselves as bumbling idiots when they wanted to start their own church? I mean, just think of it. Suppose that if me and Eric wanted to start our own religion, okay, some a new religion, and we think, well, for public relations, let's make ourselves look like a bunch of bumbling idiots. We'll, we'll have a... Hey, Peter, you're the spokesman of the Apostles. We'll have you deny Jesus three times on the biggest night of your life. Can you imagine, every time Peter got up to talk, even on the Feast of Pentecost, you, you'd probably heard murmuring. You heard people hitting each, other's, hitting each other's elbow and saying, this is the guy. He's the one I'm talking about. This is the guy that blew it. The biggest night of his life and he denied Jesus three times. Peter could probably hear it, probably ringing in his ears by the time he walked up to the pulpit, if he used the pulpit. Um, that's bad public relations. If the apostles fabricated the gospel accounts, believe me, they would have portrayed themselves in much better light. They would not have said, oh yeah, and when Jesus got arrested, we all fled and hid under beds. Peter and John followed him a little bit, but then uh, Peter lost his courage and denied Jesus three times. That's not good public relations. If you're going to spin lies, you're going to make yourself and the other apostles look like uh, superhumans, not a bunch of cowards. Um, but uh, So the apostles were not lying. Well, maybe the apostles were deceived. Um, well, the naturalistic theories have failed. There's the hallucination theory, okay? That the apostles hallucinated and just thought they were they had seen the risen Christ, but they really hadn't. Okay, there was a Bible, I guess maroon color Bible, in in my right hand. Do do we all agree on that? Why do you agree? How, how is it that you agree with me? What makes you agree with me that there's a maroon Bible? Now it's now it's in both my right and my left hand. You can see it. You can see it. See, then, then guess what? You can figure out, well, then Fernandez is not hallucinating. Okay? But see, if I tell you I'm holding an orange penguin in my right hand, how do you know that I'm wrong? Because you see that I'm holding a maroon Bible. You see, the thing is, a hallucination, by definition, is something that is not based in objective reality. It's something that occurs in somebody's mind. Okay? So if all of us see the resurrected Jesus standing in our presence, how, that's not a hallucination. It's based on objective reality. Yes? Jesus is probably like Galilee, and he calls the, the boy is caught anything tonight. They came in. 
have breakfast. What have you ever eaten breakfast in hallucination? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even in Luke 24, he ate with them. And uh, he told them to touch his wounds. Yeah. This, and this is, you know, um, this is what John's talking about when he starts off first, first John. You know, he's talking about the eternal life that his hands have touched, that his eyes have seen. Um, uh, this is, you know, and, and this is like, you know, can you see an early Christian being thrown to the lions and thinking, you know, I, I I just wish I had confirmed that and really investigated. No, no, they had done a thorough investigation and made sure yes, Jesus really had conquered death, and now I've got nothing to worry about. Um, the swoon theory, you know, basically all the naturalistic theories have failed. Basically, these are naturalistic alternative explanations for why as to why the apostles could have been deceived. Okay. Evangelicals, we, we just sat back and 100 years ago we just allowed the liberal critics to refute each other's theory. The swoon theory, supposedly Jesus passed out on the cross, didn't really die. They thought he was dead, they put him in the tomb, he revived, moved the stone away, overpowered the guards if they were even there, and then proclaimed himself as, as risen, and the apostles thought, okay, wow, he conquered death. It just doesn't work. Number one, if you're in the down position uh, on the cross, you're dead. Um, Roman soldiers, when they first started torturing people, they were probably really bummed out because they probably nailed the first guy to the cross and, uh, and the guy died within minutes. And Roman soldiers are thinking, oh, well, this is, this is bad. You know, we've got a reputation to keep. We're supposed to instill fear in people. We're trying to torture a guy and he's dead within a couple minutes. Because when you're in the down position and you, you're... Uh, your hands are supporting the, the arms are supporting the weight of your body you can't breathe and so you die within minutes and so what they figured out was well let's put a little block of wood under the feet so a person could push up now keep in mind pushing up when you got a spike through your feet is not exactly my idea of fun okay but if you want to continue to live if you want to breathe you got to do it okay and so guys on the cross would constantly be doing that see my legs popping already um, uh, constantly doing that to, to, to uh, stay alive. So they come to Jesus. That's why they were going to break the, the, the legs of the guys on the cross because then you die within minutes and they could take the guys off the cross and not uh, make unclean the Jewish uh, feast day. Um, but they came to Jesus. They thought, okay, well, he's already dead because he's in the down position and he's not moving. Well, a Roman soldier should be an expert on what dead is, okay? Because he has to make live people dead and he looks at this one and says, yeah, this one's dead, he's not alive. But he said, just to be sure, I'm, I'm going to check my work. I don't want to waste my time breaking his leg, he's already dead. Which, by the way, if you break his leg, Exodus 12, Jesus would have been disqualified as being the Passover lamb. Can't have any broken bones. Um, so he figured, he looks dead, let me confirm that he is dead. And he gave him what would have been a lethal blow, a blow that would have killed him, a blow to the side with a spear, thrust of the spear. Um, so he thought, okay, well, if he wasn't dead then, he's dead now. Let me go and break the other guy's leg. So he confirmed it there, and that would have been enough. But John said the flow of blood and water, okay? Medical science didn't know it back then. Now we know that when that portion of a body is punctured, 
and there's a, a flow of blood and a transparent syrupy substance that flows alongside of it, that only happens to a corpse. It is, it is modern medical evidence that the body that has just been punctured is already, it, it, is, it is a dead body, it is a corpse, okay? And there's only two uh, causes of death that could produce that effect. One, I believe, is a rupture of the heart, and um, the other is asphyxiation, and both of them are consistent with crucifixion, okay? Um, so uh, the flow of the blood and water, John didn't know what he was looking at. I mean, he just was like, he probably thought it was fulfillment of all the, the, the bloodshed of the animals in the Old Testament and the water cleansings of the Old Testament. And so he just said, hey, yeah, this is what I saw. I'm not lying, you know. And, uh, but, uh, but now we see that as medical evidence, modern medical evidence, uh, that he was dead. So um, whatever way, and by the way, if, if Jesus, somehow he had survived all that, and he had been scourged ahead of time, the Roman flagrum tears out chunks of, of flesh, um, I mean, if he had survived all that, he would have died in a damp tomb, being in the tomb for, for three days and three nights. Um, but then there would have been no way for him to remove the rock from the inside, as tough as it would have been from the outside, because you've got to go against gravity to, to open the tomb, um, and then overpower the Roman soldiers, uh, which now, by the way, more and more New Testament critics are acknowledging the authenticity of the account with the Roman soldiers at the tomb, because to fabricate that... Uh, would also create problems for the apostles. So, I mean, if he had presented himself alive to the apostles in that shape, they would not have said, thank you, Jesus, you have conquered death, and now we can trust in you and be willing to die for you. They would have said, no, you need medical attention because you're dying. Well, he's also in a death breath. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, um, when, he, when he rose Lazarus from the, from the dead... Lazarus wearing his grave clothes, the shroud, the cloths, all tied. The, the feet would have been tied, the hands would have been tied, uh, the mouth would have been tied shut, and then he would have had a uh, large cloth wrapped very tightly around him. Um, cloth would have hardened a little bit with the uh, different ointments placed on the body. So, you know, Lazarus was kind of doing this, and that's why Jesus said, untie him. And, um, and it would have been the same for Jesus, and I... You know, um, it just doesn't work. It just does not work. It, it is more reasonable to believe that the apostles were telling the truth and that Jesus did rise from the dead than to accept um, the alternatives that have been suggested, which are not really logical possibilities uh, at all. Um, now, we don't really have time to get into Christ's deity uh, other than to, to, to just touch on it, but... If you look at Christ's deity there on that page with the number four at the top, uh, it's absolutely clear that Jesus claimed to be God, 